You are listening to Go Doc Yourself, your weekly documentary book club. Listen in while we two errands dissect our most recent documentary find. Sometimes weird, sometimes mainstream, but always entertaining. Grab a cup of coffee and let's clutch. and welcome to Go Dock Yourself. I am Erin McCart. And I'm Erin McCourt. Welcome back in the new year. I would say it's a new me, but it's not unless I'm you. So <laughs> we'll just stick with the same old me. <laughs> That's right. 2023 bringing in some uh, big energy starting off. So I'm starting off with mediocre energy and I'm just going to write <laughs> it through the year. Yeah. That's what I'm going to do. I like that. I can handle that. Uh, we need a, like a, a calm year a reasonable year, an unremarkable year, unless it's for money. And then I'll take a remarkable year. Correct. Correct. Yeah. I, dear listeners, haven't worked in like three weeks. So I've forgotten how to behave like an adult. (laughs) I don't know how to talk to people. I don't know what to do when I go out. I don't want to go back to work. I like my feral lifestyle. I've come accustomed to it. I fully support that. Just today, I was talking to the people in my house about how I can be independently wealthy. This working thing is just really not going well for me. Like, I like being out of work. I mean, off of work, not out of work. I don't know if I'd like that, but right, semantics, as they say. Yeah, I agree. I would like to think that I would find more things to do if this was my actual lifestyle and I wasn't on, like, medical restrictions, but... I don't know. I might not. I might just sit around on my fat ass and read all day. That might be what I do. Yeah. I think that sounds like paradise. There's plenty of coffee. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. We are back to working in theory. I mean, I don't go back to my paid job until Tuesday, but as far as the podcast goes, we are back and we're back with a bang. As our first episode back, it's a long one. Mm-hmm. It's Don't Pick Up the Phone. This is on Netflix, just released, three episodes, about 40 to 55 minutes each, directed by Sarah Mast. Oh, my goodness. A lot of discussion at the workplace on this one, uh, which is how we found out about it. So always a good, uh, always good to hear a, a good recommendation. I believe Alicia told me about this, so I don't. Mm-hmm. She might have not been the only one, but uh, normally I know it's good when people are like, we watch this, it's horrible, you guys should do an episode. Right. So we're like, oh, yeah. Sounds great. <laughs> right. And I remember, I remember when these events happened. I remember when they took place. I remember watching the movie about it. I remember listening to podcasts about it. Yes. It's been told quite a bit. So this is an interesting perspective because they focus on more than just one of the crimes or hoax calls and then the actual investigation. So it was really good to see more about the story. So it wasn't just focused on that one hoax call. Yep. So we're going to start in Mount Washington, Kentucky. This is where probably the most well-known of the hoax calls happens. Um, We're introduced early to a gentleman named Buddy Stump. He's an investigator, a detective um, with the Mount Washington police force. Um, He seems like a really cool cat. I just really dug his vibe. He wasn't super conceited because there's another guy later we'll talk to that I just did not love his vibe. (laughs) 
Well, and I think that's the difference between the North and the South. More than anything, you see someone who seems like they're really wanting to help and someone else who just wants to get the job done. And I don't know that either one of them were better or worse. It's just how they come off. I don't know. I love Buddy Stump because one, it makes me think of fried green tomatoes. Yeah. And also, I love that he was like a brand new baby detective. Like he was three weeks on the job when this call came in. Right, right. And so this is happening in 2004. This is on April 9th. He gets a call, catches a case to come to the local McDonald's. He knows that it's something when he walks into the scene and it's just chaotic. There's just people running everywhere. And I couldn't decide if that was just basically like, that's what it's like if you work at a McDonald's. (laughs) But I think on top of that, there was also this other, um, I don't know, shenanigans going on again on top of that. So we find out that there was a phone call that the manager Donna Summers takes and the whole premise of this is there's an officer who calls this fast food joint. Um, He's accusing a worker of stealing somebody's wallet, somebody's purse, something like that. It's always kind of very formulaic, but the description of the perpetrator, quotey fingers is the part that cracks me up because it's like, well, it's like a female and she's petite and she has brown hair. And Donna's like, oh, oh, I have, is it Louise? Is it Louise? And the caller's like, yeah, yeah, that's totally her. Like, and so again, as the, as an objective viewer of the story, you're like, wait a second, because it's just really funny to me that it's just in, again, incredibly vague. Right. Could you vague that up a little bit for me? Absolutely. Please, please. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I also love that in the midst of this crime going on, people are still slinging burgers. People are still working. Once the cops get there en masse, people are still slinging burgers, still working. Just got just to gotta earn that dollar. Like they right. never stop churning out the food. And it's just interesting to me that they couldn't for five minutes be like, listen, maybe, maybe we stop for a minute and let's reflect. Everybody get a milkshake. Go home. We'll <laughs> talk to you tomorrow. Right? Nope, nope. Keep going. Keep going. Yes. So... We're kind of getting multiple perspectives throughout the telling of this, but it, it seems like between Buddy Stump and a lady named um, Connie Leonard, she's a news anchor, they kind of go down the long path of this horrible several hours. Mm-hmm. But again, we're talking about there's been an accusation of one of the workers, the manager's trying to field this. They believe it's a police officer that's on the phone, and the officer gives them a choice. You can either strip search this person now and check all of her clothing for this money or credit cards or whatever it is that they're looking for, or we can have somebody come from the station and take her in and potentially arrest her and all this kind of stuff. So one thing that they said in this, and I was cracking up because I had not heard about this, that the police station is only a mile down the road. Right. Yes. I made And I'm like, too. right there, I'm out. Yeah. Because at one point during this three-hour event, she's asking him what's taking so long. Oh, we're on our way. We're on our way. I'm like, bitch, you could have walked on your hands and knees and gotten there by now. It is literally (laughs) just up the road. I know. Right. Also, keep in mind that on the phone, it says, he says he's a police officer. He gives a name. But he also says that he has the other manager of the store, or local manager, whatever, and Mm -hmm. Uh, someone from corporate on the line as well. So they already think that McDonald's is involved with this call, which I think adds to the credibility of what he's saying to the person receiving the call. Right. So 
again, it starts off slow, right? The caller is specifically asking the manager to have Louise take off her shoes, her socks. Then we start to escalate a little bit, her pants, her blouse. And eventually she's just standing in the manager's office of a McDonald's completely naked. And I'm just like, oh my God, how horrible for her. She's 18. This is like a job that she has to have because her mom's been, you know, out of work. She lost her job. She's had some health issues. So this isn't like a job when I was a kid and I was just like, need I'm spending money for the mall or whatever. This was like a little bit higher stakes. So she's got a lot of personal responsibility and she's just horrified that she's been accused of something like stealing. And so again, it's sort of like, she's trying to get through this with the least collateral damage as possible. Mm -hmm. And I also think it's a lot of shock value because I mean, I've never been accused of stealing anything and then having to be strip start. You know, I mean, that's just a really big consequence. It's crazy. Right. And that's something that I brought up too. I'm like, that seems like an extreme reaction to a $50 or $20. But then I'm like, George Floyd was killed over $20. So maybe not quite that extreme, but it does seem extreme. Like, yeah, I understand this is a small town. Right. And it's a conservative town. And so these kids are raised to respect their elders, respect, you know, people of authority like the police. Donna Summers, I don't know if she was an assistant manager or manager. I know she was not the disco singer. That's what I know. I mean, that would have been cooler. Yeah. But she was like in her 40s. She was an older woman. She was not a kid, a teenager like the rest of the kids there. Yes, she was grown. Yeah. And there were also like she at one point brings in like another employee to help tape up the window to cover it. So, of course, this is all done for modesty. So Luis feels more comfortable. I say that with the most sarcasm in the world, but right. That's just mighty wide of them to do that. But these are things that the caller is saying to them, like, okay, if we're going to do this on site, I want you to do this to protect her privacy. And they're like, okay, that makes sense. And let's do this slowly, take off her shoes, check everything, put them in a bag, take off her socks, check them, put them in a bag. So he's going through this process methodically and he sounds very calm. He sounds very authoritative mm-hmm. and it's, it's the slow buildup that allows it to get as horrible as it does in my opinion. Oh yeah. I I hundred percent agree with that. Cause mm-hmm. if you jump straight to the horribleness, people are going to be like, that's fucking adorable. Go away. Right. I agree. Mm-hmm. You're mentioning that they're taking all of her stuff and they're putting it in a bag. They eventually take her purse, her phone, her keys, blah, blah, blah. So in essence, she is stranded Mm -hmm. in the middle of this office with nothing. She can't really leave, which is discussed later because she's, they have given her an apron to kind of cover the, it's like, like the worst hospital gown ever, right? It's just like, you can choose front or back or whatever, but you can't get it all the way around you. So they've given her something you know, in the midst of like being checked out and stuff like this. So once she's completely naked and all her stuff has been taken away, this phone call has been going on for about two hours. And right there again, I'm just like, what the fuck are these police at? (laughs) Right. Just up the road. And he's like, oh, we're like short staffed and shit. And I'm like, just at some point, I don't know. I'm sorry. I just get so angry listening. It is very hard. It's very, and this is again discussed throughout the whole documentary is people don't understand how these, how it got this far, how, Mm -hmm. and so, I mean, like we're sitting here poking holes in it. We're not the only ones who have mentioned these things. These are our observations, but it's really funny to understand like 
in the moment, how did this kind of shit escape these people? Right. And so the couple other things I'll mention is there's video of the entire thing that Buddy is watching and kind of talking us through. There's no sound. You're just Mm -hmm. watching this horrible thing unfold. And then also the restaurant is still running. This is a busy shift. Elise was not supposed to be there. She stayed and volunteered to stay late for a second shift. So this is a busy dinner rush. So Donna is still trying to work as she does this. And what is the solution, the caller solution to that problem so Donna could continue to work, Erin? You need to get a trusted man in here. So Donna brings in her Beyonce. Mm -hmm. His Mm -hmm. name is Walter. I think it's Nix. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, enter Walter, her fiance, who we get the sense that he's a decent human being at the outset. (laughs) I mean... Like, I know. Yeah. This is not one of these guys that you find out has a terrible record or whatever. You know, I mean, he's just like bland up to this point is sort of the, my read right. on how this worked. So Walter gets on the phone. He is making Luis do jumping jacks without the apron. There's a lot of like, well, if she shimmies around a lot and the 20 falls out of under her boob or something like, I don't understand, again, the logic of this. I think we've gone well beyond logic. There are several times that I'm like, no, nothing, nothing about this makes any sense at all. But this guy on the phone apparently is Svengali-like and can talk anybody into anything. I guess. As you can kind of hear, this is escalating. So the caller begins to ask for things like humiliation at one point Luis is laying across this dude's lap she's getting spanked on her bare ass for like 20 minutes yes and a lot of this is again kind of reasoned from the caller of like well we need to understand if she's on drugs we need to understand if she's on and I'm just like again my dude maybe just a mouth swab I don't know well yeah at one time they instruct Luis to sit on Walter's lap because maybe we can tell if she has alcohol or drugs in her breath. Like, mm-hmm. It's not necessary. That's not part of the police protocol to have people sit on their lap to follow through with that. I just. Oh, geez, be I, for one, I'm glad I've heard this because if I ever get pulled over and they're like, look, I lost my breathalyzer. You're just going to have to sit on my lap and blow in my face. And I'll be like, <laughs> erroneous, erroneous, sir. Oh, <laughs> uh, listen, I'm guessing it's going to be some skinny ass police officer. And if they want my fat ass to sit on their lap, I mean, they're just asking for disability. So it's fine. I get it. I'm going to charge them for that. It'll be $20. Thank you very much. Yes. Yes. So all jokes aside, the caller has Louise give this man oral sex. So she's sexually assaulted. I mean, she was already sexually assaulted and now I mean, it's just gotten worse. And I, is the justification so we can see if there are drugs stuck down her throat? What is the justification for that one? Again, I, I love the fact that <laughs> in the moment, that guy must have been a real, real convincing. Like, why is he using his powers for good? Why isn't he like a negotiator for like terrorists and stuff? <laughs> uh, but no, he's terrorizing 18-year-old girls that work. And yeah. younger, yeah. I yeah. What I think is it really... I don't think Walter needed much justification to do these things. I'm not saying he's a horrible person. I'm saying a lot of people want to do things and don't do it because they know it's wrong. And the minute Mm -hmm. someone gives them the okay, they're like, sweet. And they just fucking do it. And then after the fact, they're like, well, shit. Because as soon as she finished or he finished, who knows, um, he left. 
Like he he knew immediately it was wrong and he leaves. Right. Mm -hmm. Now you might be asking yourself, where was Donna during all of this? She was in and out. As Aaron said, there was a busy restaurant to run. So it's almost like she happened to walk in anytime nothing was going on. Well, I'm guessing I, I thought about this too, because they said every time, almost every time Donna walked in, the apron was back in place. Right. So it didn't look as nefarious. Mm-hmm. But because of the situation at hand, I'm guessing she knocked before she came in. Oh, okay. Smart. Right? Yeah. I mean, it makes sense that you're not just going to open the door if there's a naked girl in there. So, but there was one time that she walked in that she, that Louise had not covered up yet. But mm-hmm. Donna just walks by, gets in the safe and walks back out. And by then Louise was covered up. You know, did she see it? Did she ignore it? Was she just in the moment of trying to function? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I don't understand either. So uh, the voice on the phone asks Donna to bring in another man mm-hmm. after Walter has finally had enough. So she brings in a guy who's a custodian there. I think he's actually not working that day, but he walks in the room, kind of brings a sense of like, this is not right. Kind of challenges the caller in some way, just be like, I'm not fucking doing this or whatever. And so I think several things happen at the same time. Donna realizes, oh yeah, there's supposed to be a manager or corporate or whatever on the line at the same time. Although I, you know, I just think that some things fall into place in her head. Anyway, the call ends, the guy hangs up. And so that sense of like, oh my God, what have we done? That has happened. So. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine how horrible everyone felt, but as much as we want to, make Donna also a victim and to a certain extent she was she was also somewhat complicit so mm-hmm. yeah it, it's it's not okay so buddy buddy's telling the story he goes to take Louise's statement and realizes that's his fucking neighbor that's one of his friends since childhood it's his daughter mm-hmm. and so now this is like a really personal case and and I poor buddy he's like tearing up just talking about it 20 years later you know what I mean or 15 mm-hmm. years later and so he just seems like a really good guy, but it was hard to watch him go through that process again. But so now it's very personal. And now he really definitely wants to find the guy who made the call, right? It's not that they're disregarding the people who were in the room, but he knows the person who made the call is really the criminal. Right. Kind of a um, catalyst for this whole thing. Mm-hmm. So they're trying to decide, you know, is this somebody that's, disgruntled is this somebody that had some kind of axe to grind with Luis they're trying to decide you know I think initially they're thinking this person would have wanted to see what was happening so was there Mm -hmm. a line of sight was there some kind of you know place where they could have monitored the situation obviously they wouldn't be able to see in the office but I think they would have kind of been able to be around the restaurant if that was their motivation so there's kind of a lot of Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff going on but buddy is bright enough to use the Google machine to do a quick internet search to understand, you know, what is happening here? Has this happened anywhere else? And lo and behold, he hits the jackpot and he finds out this is not uncommon. This is maybe Mm -hmm. even common. So I was like, I thought that was really funny that a little Google search, which is how I live my whole life every day, helped with the case. Right. (laughs) Well, this is 2004. So it might've been asked Jeeves and I'm okay with that, but it was early enough that people weren't, people didn't use a search engine for everything. That's not the first thing you think of. Anytime I have a question now, I Google it. Right. It's everything. I don't think I have any knowledge of my own anymore, mm-hmm. period. But I don't think it was quite so ubiquitous back then. I can't remember. I was there. I just don't remember. Right. But 
he thought to use it, which was brilliant. It's brilliant. So what did they find out? They found out there were calls from all over the country. Mm-hmm. Well, not from. That had happened all over the country. They found seven th- 73 cases in 32 states. The first call was in 1994. Ten years previous. Mm-hmm. And That's I like crazy. at this point that they start to show some news coverage because I'm like, Anything that gets this message out there that this is happening, I think is a good thing. Because that's what we've been missing in the past, right? That it was just sort of shoved under the rug. It wasn't really discussed. And so people didn't know about it. And now, like, these stories are starting to come out. And there's, I mean, like, you know, you drag it into the light. It's less likely to happen. Less likely to affect people. That's not saying it it isn't. But I think it's just less likely. Right. Well, just think, from 94 to 2004, as the internet's coming around, it was a much smaller world. Mm -hmm. And now, anytime anything happens, we know about it. I mean, it's on the neighborhood app. It's on Yahoo. It's on MSN. It's everywhere. Mm-hmm. So you'd know about things a lot faster. But that was what allowed him to get away with this. Because these were small towns. No one really talked to each other. They were covered locally very quickly. And then and they moved on. Right. Right. And they weren't really investigated, we find out. That's for sure. So we kind of switch gears here a little bit. We talk to Elizabeth, who is the victim of hoax call number 26. This is one in Idaho. This is just December 16th in 1999. There's an officer Davis that calls and kind of talks about there's a petite blonde who's stolen something. And so the manager goes out and finds Elizabeth who is not blonde, which I thought was really funny because she talks or about petite. <laughs> She's like, that's not me, dude. And Elizabeth specifically mentions, you know, the being raised to obey authority, like to not question adults, because that's what good kids do, basically. Mm-hmm. This is why this shit would not have been able to go to like fly with me because I was not a good kid. And I didn't give a fuck what adults said at that age. I mean, I moved out when I was 16, but still. Right. Yeah. No, I 100%. I mean, let's, you know, you're, you're raising people to be complicit until it's, you know, then you don't want him to be complicit in like, well, you didn't really teach him that in the first place. So this is a guy that's capitalizing on a big vein of, you know, whatever we do here in the States anyway. um, So she then is subjected to the slow strip search favored by the caller and her manager and, you know, all this kind of shit. It's, you know, and she talks about how horrible it was and how she didn't feel like she had any choices and blah, blah, blah. And she was again, 16. Not that that makes it better or worse, but she is now a minor. So that's another crime on top of what they're doing. Now they're doing it to a minor. Right. Layered, layered problems here. Mm -hmm. She does have an ally in this. There's a guy named Derek. He's a cook and he comes in and he's like, he comes into the restaurant. This is a pizza joint. So he talks about, he knew something was up. There was a lot of pizzas piled up, breadsticks piled up. And he's like, this isn't normally how we run. Um, I think they seem to have some kind of efficiency going on there. So the other wait staff and, and everybody told him that there was something going on in the office and he went to check it out. And as soon as he saw Elizabeth, he was like, uh, fuck no. So, mm-hmm. you know, he was the one who kind of dashed the cold water over this situation and got it to stop. I think it's unfortunate that it takes an outsider to come in to look at the situation because at this point, usually it's gone too far, right? right? They're not there from the beginning. They just see this end result for them to say, no, and to stop it. It seems it's always an external source that stops the problem. Right. I do think it's funny that Derek talks about the manager being extremely sweaty. <laughs> like, fuck yeah. Those are psychosomatic things that are coming through when you knew you shouldn't mm-hmm. have been doing shit. 
Yeah. Well, he also said that, you know, back when this happened in 99, he was positive the manager was involved with it because no one knows about this going on anywhere else. Right. But then as you hear about this happening elsewhere, he's like, oh, yeah, no, clearly he wasn't involved with it. But at first you think they're part of the plot. And good for him for admitting that his perspective changed. And a lot of times on these documentaries, these people just go down with the ship and it's just like, mm, OK, just <laughs> it's OK to adapt and, you know, to evolve. It's fine. <laughs> like we like yeah. people like that. So. Get more information and your opinion changes. Right. Yes. Right. But this is kind of one of those moments where you hear that this is not a priority for the police and their perspective is just, well, it's isolated and that's as far as it gets. You get a dude that sucks. That's yeah. really what you get. She wrote down her entire story that night to kind of get it out, which I'm sure was somewhat cathartic, but clearly doesn't solve the problem. Right. Um, but at least she has it all there from immediately after it happened and there was no video right whereas buddy had this whole video a lot of the other restaurants did not have video of what happened so it's just one person saying what another person did and oh yeah someone was on the phone were they though i don't know well, i would think at least they could check the goddamn phone records i mean right or also a lot of times the caller would speak to the victim as well not just the manager but the victim this is what's going to happen next this is what we're going to do next and like even the victims were like it was very you know calm and had authority mm -hmm. and so they assumed it was a police officer yeah 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 so at this point we make uh victor flattery mm -hmm. he's a detective sergeant he has some wendy's cases in massachusetts and he is our second major investigator that's kind of cited throughout this whole thing he does say ka a couple times with a really good boston accent which made me very yeah. very happy but yes. even at the beginning of this, he goes on this little weird sidebar where he's talking about, you know, we're normally out buying drugs. And I'm like, cool. <laughs> like, it was just a random thing to say. And I'm like, yes, we know you're very, very important. And you're just out solving all the crime. Yes. Well, aside from Victor, the interesting thing about this the cases in Massachusetts, there were four calls in one night, four different Wendy's were called in one night, two of which were at least 90 minutes apiece, which makes me think this is someone's career, right? I mean, that's a lot of fucking time. I have some things to say about that later. Yeah. Right. That's so much fucking time. I mean, I don't like talking on the phone for five minutes. Sorry. Anyway, in one of these cases, a female manager was talked into assaulting a male employee. Mm -hmm. So you usually see it with the underage or barely legal female being the victim. In this case, there was a male victim. And so he, this caller did not discriminate, did not care. Right. Apparently. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So those things were a little bit different. But Victor, you know, he very much was like, where did we even start with this? Right. You, you have a call coming from somewhere in the U.S. You don't know where. Could be anywhere. Yeah. I do like the fact, though, that he kind of starts to think about the phone call itself a little earlier than it at least it was reported in, in the earlier cases. Right. So mm -hmm. he's like, how do we trace this call? And so he gets, he gets some static from the people at AT&T and they're like, what call? We couldn't possibly trace it. And he's like, really? And so God love him for, I guess, for going back and just being a total pain in the ass until he like mm -hmm. made somebody crumble and look some shit up for him. <laughs> right. Well, the calls were initially not real numbers, right? Mm -hmm. So they came from calling cards, which is what Buddy had found as well, because someone yes. in Kentucky was smart enough to star 69 as soon as the call ended. Right. 
And so for all you kids out there that don't know what star 69 is, when we had landlines, that was a way to figure out who the last call was from. So if someone else had called in in between them, they would not have been able to do it. They have to do it as soon or before someone else calls. Right. It seems archaic now, but brilliant stroke uh, from whatever employee at that McDonald's who had thought to do that. Right. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, that number is not a legit number. It's a calling card number. Mm -hmm. And so calling cards were used for payphones or even your regular landline to call long distance, essentially for cheaper. You could buy minutes. It's like prepaid phones or something. You could buy minutes for a lot cheaper Mm -hmm. and then use them to call. But then that's the number that shows up, not an actual phone that you called from. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. So AT&T was like, listen, there's nothing we can do. We couldn't possibly, these are just calling cards. They're whatever. And Victor's like, really? Really? So he's like pushing, pushing, pushing. He's on hold for like days trying to go through this. (laughs) Finally, they get to someone who's like, listen, on the the down low, we don't like people to know this. But after Mm 9-11, they decided to start tracing calling cards so you could find them. Right. I do really like the point where he's like, but when I look at these cards, there are different numbers listed. You know, so Mm -hmm. it's like, what do these numbers mean? Michelle is the one that he names specifically that they had um, a long going relationship trying to figure this shit out. And she's like, I don't know. And he's like, really, you don't know? Like, there's weird different numbers on here. I mean, it seems like those might be useful in a situation like that. And she's like, whatever, it's fine. Don't worry about it. So, again, he's just trying to, like, he's letting her know, I'm not going away. I want some fucking answers. And I really did admire that about him. Just, like, being like, logic. Mm -hmm wins motherfuckers like yeah. <laughs> well I love that it took so long to get to that point and I'm like did he eventually send them a bill for his time <laughs> like you could have told me this in five minutes and this is where we are weeks later could you imagine unacceptable. like you're in some kind of city council meeting and they're like well how are the police spending their time and they're like well they're on the call, on the phone for hours and hours and hours like <laughs> just doesn't sound great right like great work but I'm guessing a lot of detective work is spent on the phone. And now it's probably the internet instead, you know, but still back in the day, I'm guessing a lot of that is calls and just a lot of drudgery that no one wants to think about. They want to think of the cool stuff, like you're chasing criminals and shit. When in reality, that job probably sucks most of the time. Ugh, so much paperwork. (laughs) So they find out the original call, well, the originating number was coming from Panama City, Florida. We should have known. Everything bad comes from Florida. That's what I was going to say, too. Like, Florida, you need some, like, good PR. Like, could we just get someone reasonable to hang out there and just be like, we're going to gather up all the Florida mans and put them aside so they're not any terrible headlines anymore and just going to go back to be, like, a nice, like, respectable retirement place? Was it ever a nice, respectable retirement place? I mean, that's what I, that's, it is in my mind, so. Okay. 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 Anyway. So Victor then goes to Panama City Police Department and tells them, hey, uh, what's up with this, man? Right. And they're like, oh, we're also getting a lot of calls from people saying their hoax is coming from this city. (laughs) And like they just documented it, made a memo and moved on with their life. They didn't do anything about it. Yeah. Again, your burg is out of control. Like, are there any patrol people anywhere? And these are happening on a fucking payphone. Can you imagine sitting on a payphone in public for hours? Girl, this is my main complaint with this whole thing. You're (laughs) fucking telling me that there was a man on a payphone 
in Florida for three and four hours at a time. And there wasn't anybody that noticed anything. There wasn't a surveil of this. I just, that's the part where I'm like, he's just a ghost. What? I watched clerks. I know there there are drug dealers (laughs) hanging outside of the gas station right there. They would have heard everything. That's who you need to talk to. Yeah. I just was like, no, no, I just, that one's hard for me. Mm -mm. Agreed. Agreed. Now, granted, people just walk in and out and you'll just catch snippets, but still at some point you'd be like, eh? I just think the, even the people that work there would have been like, this is a noticeable thing. Right. Other people need a phone too. Hot pants. Move along. I don't, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Anyway. Ugh. So Elizabeth does come back on and say that when she found out that this happened to other people, it made her feel less stupid. And all I could think of is bless your heart. You were a kid. You are not to blame for any of this, any of but it. But she's also a girl. And so somehow I feel like um, you it's mentioned, all her fault. Yes. If you, you mentioned that there is one reported case in all of this where a male mm-hmm. was assaulted. I think if the flip had, we flipped the script and they had been all men assaulted, this shit would have been solved instantly. But, you Maybe, know, women, yeah. they just ask for it by their just general existence. They're complicit. So, right. They yes. didn't fight back. They didn't uh, walk out naked with nothing into the crowded restaurant. <sighs> Yeah, yeah. So somehow this is all their fault. And, you know, crimes against women aren't necessarily taken as seriously. So just a little, again, feminist aside from your favorite errands. Yeah, I I will say, though, I think they were mostly white women. So if they were women of color, we probably would never even have known about it. Honestly, (laughs) true. I mean, unfortunately, unfortunately. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's probably the only reason it got solved. Sorry, (sighs) buddy and Victor. I'm sure you're lovely. Anyway, so Victor feels like he hit a dead end, but so he needs to identify where the cards are purchased, which could be anywhere. But I wonder if those fun numbers maybe would show where they were. I don't know. Again, you'd think that they would be traceable somehow. So, and indeed they are. So they were purchased February 19th at Walmart in Panama city. I'm guessing there's a Walmart. I've been to Panama city. I've never seen a Walmart there, but I wasn't looking for one either. So I don't know. Surely there's hundred percent. Yeah. Anyway, so Victor calls Walmart and he's like, hey, can we get video? And they're like, I don't know. And they shut him to someone else and, hey, can we get video? And they're like, I don't know. So for hours, he shunted around people till you finally get someone who's like, oh, yeah, totally. We have video. And they send him a video. Mm-hmm. What does the video have, Aaron? Like everything but what he needs. It's like video <laughs> of the gun counter, video of like the vending machines, video of I don't even know what all. But he's like, there are several sections, but not like the entrances and not the registers. And it was really of poor quality. So that was kind of a bummer. It was a lot of nothing. that he, I, And again, you can just see the defeat on his face. He's like, listen, I've been working for fucking months to try to get this. <laughs> right. And so... Poor Victor and Hope Springs Eternal, but he keeps coming back to it. And again, I find that very admirable because I think a lot of people would have been like, I got no time for this. I think, unfortunately, most people did that, which is why no one yes. else was charged, right? Right, right. So it's just not great. Mm-hmm. So again, he sort of loses out. There's nothing really to follow up on. But you got so excited that maybe they'd nail somebody, but no. Nope. And just when his hopes are dashed, he gets a call from one buddy stump. Do you think he was like, is this a real name? <laughs> well, once you hear his voice, because the first thing he said is, you could tell he's not from Massachusetts. No. <laughs> Buddy Stump has a an amazing Kentucky accent. He really does. Oh, my goodness. I, I about lost it when 
they started talking about someone named Stuart later and it was Sturt. <laughs> Sturt over and over. I just cracks me up. Anyway. So Buddy had also talked to the Panama City Police Department and they told him about Victor working the case. So they had a meet cute and they so cute. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so they were able to work together, which is one thing I like because they weren't like, I'm going to solve it. No, I'm going to solve it. It was very much like, bitch, let's just get this done. Right. Which is nice. The calling card used in the Kentucky case was purchased at a different Walmart than the ones from Victor's cases. So they were able to call that Walmart and say, hey, do you have any video of the registers? And like, bet we absolutely do. That's when they get some viable video. Right. A bougier Walmart, let's say that. One's that's more Mm -hmm. concerned with security at the beginning of the whole thing. Mm -hmm. So they are able to find this cat. I guess the, the video at the register is not necessarily great because you're looking down on the whole transaction so you can see the prepaid cards going over the belt and being scanned and all that kind of stuff and you can get some detail of this person's physical attributes in their face and stuff like that for instance there was like you know almost a mullet and like a bit of a bush bushy mustache you know like just some feature-ish kind of stuff but at the entrance exit cameras you can very clearly see somebody that matches what you saw from the other video and there's a distinct clothing marking because his pants have a stripe on them and that's police stripes so says no Victor. yeah so yeah they think it's a cop because he has braids on his pants what is it with people going to commit crimes in their work uniforms I think it's complacency. They're just like, oh, it's fine. It's fine. I've been doing this for 10 years. For 10 years. And no one Mm -hmm. has said anything. You're right. Right. So that's where we end episode one, guys, is like, bitch, we found him and it's a cop. And you're like, what? Yeah. And then I could not get to the next episode fast enough. I was like, I don't need to pee. I don't need another drink. I need to find out who this guy is. I know. For this being three episodes that are almost an hour long each, it does not feel like that long. Yeah, it was very engaging. You just want the story. Okay. Yeah. So episode two starts in Statesboro, Georgia. We meet Deborah, who is host call number 67. And we also meet Daniel, who's Deborah's twin brother. Right. Who both speak to us. Right. Deborah was working at Taco Bell. She wanted to be an independent woman and she got a job there to make her own money. She was 19 years old. Um, One night she gets home from work and just starts telling Daniel about what happened. And I can't imagine as a sibling and probably twins, you know, you're told that they're very, very close. Listening to that from someone you care about, knowing there's absolutely nothing you can do, how helpless you would feel listening to that. Horrible. Yeah. And again, it's difficult to listen to these stories because they're real. And you're like, how did this happen to somebody? Like, I don't doubt the person that's telling the story, but you're just like, what is wrong with us that we let it get to this point just as a collective society? Right. So the call's about 3 a.m. in the morning, which, you know, is is not cool because nothing good happens after midnight. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, her story is the slow strip search. There's a lot of, like, bending over and, I don't know, just doing a lot of stupid calisthenic stuff because... Oh, girl. I'll let you take it. You look like you're just so excited to say the next ridiculous line. (laughs) So the justification for her working out naked was because she needed to sweat. Because if she had any money hidden 
in her crevices, as it were, in her person, then the manager touching her, she would turn green? Right. So the sweat residue would be green and you'd be able to see that. And I'm like, what the actual fuck? I mean, science is real, guys. Like, it's okay <laughs> to like want to learn in your life about <laughs> pseudoscience sounding kind of bullshit stuff. And again, if someone steals sweaty bugs, it's not enough to stick it up my badge. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's got to be like a whole roll of money for me to want to stick it up in my badge. I'm not just sticking a $20 bill up there. No, money is really dirty, you guys. Gross. <laughs> It's so gross. So she had to like work out in like nobody looks good working out naked. Okay. No, it's just not even at 19. So finally her manager hangs up the phone with this asshole after hours. Like finally he's just like fuck off or whatever. And I'm like, well, he had felt he's like he rubbed her entire in her mouth, her ears, her genitals. He literally felt her up in her entirety looking for green. Right. Fuck. Do you think the manager at any of these was like, I'll just give you 20 bucks if I don't have to like molest my worker? Like, fuck right. off. Crisis averted. Here you go. And you're the next she 20 for the right. next time. Right. <laughs> okay. Like, whew. good stuff. Yeah. The manager eventually, I don't know what happens. It probably escalated to the point of something more sexual than what had happened already. And the manager told the caller to fuck off and threw the clothes at Deborah and walked out. Like, why do you have a right to be angry? You just completely assaulted this young girl. I, I don't know, but he was told to do it. We'll get into that later. Yeah. And it was, the call lasted for hours, of course. And it wasn't until a couple days later that they realized she realized it was a hoax. Uh, so, I did like the part, like is a weird word to say here, but it does describe the effects, like the long-term effects of the victims of this crime, because it sounds Mm -hmm. like, okay, or whatever, but she really struggled to feel comfortable. She quit that job, which is great. Obviously, yeah. But she also quit school and she loses a scholarship. And so, you know, she just really had a hard time Mm -hmm. kind of coming to grips with what happened to her again she felt very alone she does describe later that when she found out that there were others that were victims it made her feel so much different because I think you just feel so stupid and how do you talk to people about this because everybody's so super judgy about it and again I'm like you're not (laughs) you're not the one we're judging (laughs) right (laughs) we are judging just not you yes right and how do you ever trust anyone again how do you trust anyone in an authority position again period I just assume you're never in a room alone with anyone for the rest of your life. It could be. I don't know. It just seems like a lot of therapy and a lot of medicine. And Terrifying. Still then, yeah. Yes. Yeah. We flash back to Mount Washington, Kentucky. We talked to Buddy a little bit. He's still, yeah, he's working on it. He realizes that as they're trying to solve the problem, that this is still happening. Right? Even though you don't see it, this is still happening every day, clearly. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Victor thinks it's a cop. So he goes to Panama City to find him. They get to the police department in Panama City and the cops are like, no, we don't know this cat. Like they showed the mm-hmm. pictures of the of the video and they're like, no, nope, we don't know him. And he's like, but the cop, the uniform. And they're like, no, that's corrections. He works at a jail or a prison. Or they could have been security because a lot of security guards have similar uniforms. It's, it's it could have I been mean, anything. Yeah. There's a, 
There's a psychological element to the design of any like security type uniform. Mm-hmm. So you want it to feel like an authority position, like a cop. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So I was really surprised at the beginning when they were like, oh, it's clearly a cop. And I'm like, okay. I mean, like good starting point or whatever, but like, yeah, I'm like Brinks or mall security or like whatever. <laughs> right. Like a lot of people wear uniform pants mm-hmm. that have some kind of stripe on the side. So, yep. you know, I'm no expert, Aaron. I just have seen a few things I guess I know well that's why having my ex-husband who had worked in at the prison for like a decade his outfit his uniform his his little outfit he wore (laughs) looked just like a cop like he would get treated like a cop in stores and whatnot so great so they do kind of find that there's a marathon station where all of the phone calls for the Massachusetts Wendy's like four call night occurred and two of those phone calls they would have been on the phone for 90 minutes so that's three hours Mm -hmm. again see previous part of the conversation where we're like what the fuck who is out there who can stand that long was this was there a chair involved well i'm guessing he has really good shoes because as a corrections officer you walk a lot so i'm thinking he has good inserts okay okay could just be me and thank god it's florida and they have good weather i don't because this would have been a seasonal thing if this were in a northern state. I guess. Mm-mm. I also like that Buddy is like, listen, we might not be able to get the caller. We're working on that. However, Miss Donna Summers, not the disco singer, and Mr. Walter Nix, they got to pay the piper, right? They're not scot-free. Regardless of what they say, why they did it, they went ahead and pressed charges. So... Walter Nix pleads guilty to sex crimes. He, what I love is that they put in a plea for like probation. The judge is like, nope, try again. (laughs) (laughs) Not going to happen. So he, he has to be on a registry now, probably still, this is years later. Um, But he also served five years in prison. Donna Summers also pleads. This I don't quite understand. Now they brought the plea to her and she agreed to it, but it, it's like she pled guilty but maintained innocence with the law. I'm sure that has to do with her criminal record, which is good, but I don't understand the point of it. Right. I always thought that it was like the offer plea, which is what she does, is saying like I'm aware that you guys have enough evidence to convict me, but mm-hmm. we've kind of reached an agreement that I'm just going to accept this and then it's going to be over with. Right. And and pleas are going to be different depending on the crime. I get that, right? They just want to be over it. They don't want to go to trial. It saves everyone money. Great. Right. But being innocent in the eye of the law. So was it that, because she pled guilty to a misdemeanor and she got a year probation. Was it at the end of that year, the crime is like not there? They withheld judification at that point is what I'm assuming happened. I mean, I think it's something similar to that. I, I'm not a legal scholar, unfortunately. Maybe maybe that's my 2023 goal. <laughs> So to become a legal scholar? Yeah. <laughs> a little bit more intelligently. Uh, no. It sounds boring as hell, so no. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. But I do love it that at this point we talk about the old Milgram study. Yes, we do. We yes. meet uh, Jerry M. Berger, Dr. Jerry M. Berger, who's a professional of social psychology, and he discusses the Milgram study. And what is that? So you may have seen some footage of this, dear listener. It's very famous. So there are three participants in this study. There's the teacher, the learner, and I'm going to say the proctor or the, you know, kind of MC of this whole. (laughs) (laughs) The idea is that 
there's somebody sitting behind controls and they're reading questions to somebody that's off screen or whatever. So the person reading the questions is the teacher. The learner is just a voice, just unaccounted for. They're sitting somewhere else. The teacher can't see them. And they're supposed to remember the answers to the questions that the teacher reads. If they get it right, nothing happens. If they get it wrong, the teacher administers a shock. And the idea is that it starts off small and then it escalates. And so there's a dial and the teacher understands the severity of the shock. And also the learners participating by like screaming in pain at the end. And so they're demonstrating here that um, the proctor is kind of standing over the teacher's shoulder, telling them that they must continue. So this is probably a person in a white lab coat of some kind. Mm-hmm. An authority figure is represented here by the proctor or whatever you want to call that person. So in the experiment, the teacher thinks that it's actually the learner that's being experimented on, but it's not. It's actually the teacher and their reaction to authority is sort of the whole to do with this. So they demonstrate that 65% of people who participated in this study would administer a lethal shock to somebody because somebody else told them to, that they had to do it. And it's, it's very interesting. It's disturbing. Yeah. It really is. Yeah. Because thankfully they weren't delivering any real shock. So kudos to the actor that played them. Right. Yes. But the fact that knowing that the shock was going to give extreme pain or possibly, like you said, a lethal dose. I don't know what dose is lethal. So I don't they either. Can... But they this is all built into the lore, right. if you will, of the study. They know it's, it's a lot and they know it's going to be painful. Like you could see the video of one of the participants as he was giving a higher shock, he looked distressed. Like he didn't want to do it. You could tell he was like, God damn it. Get the, get the answers right. I don't want to do this. Right. Well, and I mean, there's hesitation and there's Mm -hmm. like, you know, he's defeat. Yes. He wants to get out of the situation, but the, the authority figure is like telling him he must continue. You must continue. You must continue. Mm -hmm. And so you can see that despite this person's desire to quit, they are continuing because somebody else told them to, which is the whole to do of this is like mm-hmm. how we as human beings react to authority or whatever. So, yeah, I like mm-hmm. how uh, Dr. Jerry said that under the right circumstances, any one of us are probably capable of doing disturbing and uncharacteristic things. So even though a lot of us look at this situation and think not the not the Milgram study, but the hoax call. And we think, no, we wouldn't fucking do that. And a lot of people did hang up. I mean, there were a lot of misses throughout, I'm sure, this cat's criminal career. But there would be something, something that someone could probably catch me up on. And it would take me far too long to realize until I was down the path. I just don't know what that is. Right. So I think this is, again, just trying to challenge all those people to be like, uh, you know, like you, you really have no idea until you're in the midst of this call. Mm hmm trying to decipher how this is going. So I just think it's really interesting that in most of the cases, at least that they explore of the hoax calls, the perpetrators of this, like the managers and stuff are not teenage kids themselves. That's the part that I found really interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They're adults. And Mm -hmm. that's where we go next. We meet one of those manager adults that talk to us, Alan, who's in Rapid City, South Dakota. He was host call number 89. And was it in 2003? I, 
I didn't quite catch the year. Oh, I didn't write that down either. I just have that it's at a Hardee's. Um, he's the assistant manager and he's 50. Yeah. So yeah. And he was fairly new in this role, right? He got the job. Mm -hmm. He'd only been there for a couple of weeks. So he's still fairly new in this role when he gets the call and you know, the caller tells him to give the employee the options of being strip searched at the police station or at Hardee's, the caller, and the employee chooses to do it at the Hardee's because you think, okay, we'll do this quick. It'll be done. It'll be over with. You don't think about what's going to happen, right? Well, just... I mean, there's a lot of formality with having the police involved and it's mm -hmm. scary. People are afraid of the legal system. I mean, we are taught to fear the police. So... This is somebody who's capitalizing on a lot of a, a collective fear of young people. You know, I would say if you're working at Hardee's, you know, you're not like independently wealthy and feel like you've got all the resources in the world. So, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of threat to your perhaps livelihoods and, and things like that, too. Yeah. I think something you said, I don't even know what episode it was, probably the drug scandal one. But you made a comment that as white people we expect the legal system to work because a lot of times it does for us. We're in that situation. We expect it to work. You'll notice I don't think a single person of color is on either end of this. Now it could be, we didn't talk to a lot of people, but a person of color might have been more hesitant to comply with the police. Cause fuck that. Right. I um, mean, yeah. Whereas, whereas we, as white people were taught, well, this system works for you. You just gotta, you've got to help them. You've got to do what they're asking and it'll all work out. So that might be a huge part of the problem as well. And it's a step-by-step -step process. I mean, like, you know, right. we start with very small requests and it doesn't seem like a big leap to go on to the next, you know what I mean? Because you're just like, if I just do this one more thing, it'll be over with. Absolutely. Yeah. And Connie had said, well, he seems to like the slow build. And I, and I was like, I disagree, Connie. I'm guessing he started off a couple of times saying, hey, why don't you get this person butt-ass naked and make him do jumping jacks? And people are like, nope. <laughs> and so they hung up. And so he's learned over the 10 years, he's honed that skill. And now he knows exactly step-by-step step what he needs to do to get him in this position. We also talked to Randall Connolly, who is the attorney for Allen. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was smart that they talked to some of the attorneys to give us some kind of legal uh, expertise that we don't possess, which is mm -hmm. <laughs> the layperson. We don't? What? Yeah, I know. Crazy, right? Um, So we kind of... We find out that Alan and the employee agreed again to the strip search. He's, I mean, she's removing her clothing, I think, and handing it to him. But he's, like, checking in the sleeves and, like, turning her socks inside out and all this stupid bullshit. And I'm like, I don't know how small you can make a dollar bills. But anyway, the caller is specifically asking him to do each act for two or, uh, like, over two hours. Mm -hmm. Alan ends up being charged with three felonies. He is facing rape and kidnapping charges, despite um, what his attorney says is he doesn't really fit the profile, right? Like, there are no priors here. He's not known as a violent person. So you're just like, everyday average person just, you know, gets in this terrible situation and they don't react the way that we would hope that they would with some kind of common mm -hmm. sense. Right. And he, like he said, you know, he followed through with a lot of the stuff. At a certain point, the caller went and didn't search for drugs. And he's like, what? I thought it was for money. And then right. his assistant comes in and that's kind of when he realized what he did was wrong. It's uh, unfortunately, again, it's someone else coming in at the end of the situation to be like, the fuck? Well, he's breaking the spell, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's just like you faced with a new perspective. I'm sure everybody's face is like, huh? you know, <laughs> you're like, oh, fuck. Right, because you went down this long path. They're walking in at the yes. end and they see the final 
Yeah. Yes. So he realizes what he did was wrong. He goes home, he comes to work the next day and there were two officers there and they arrested him. Mm-hmm. And thankfully what I did not get the attorney's name. What was his name? Randall Connolly. Well, thankfully Mr. Connolly was good at his job, mm-hmm. but he said that there was a camera that recorded everything. And at first the victim had requested the camera be covered because she doesn't want it recorded. I get that. But he I mean, was like, God, you're being naked. I mean, right. Jesus. Yeah. But he, Alan was like, no, I don't think that's a good idea. And, and his lawyer had a really good point saying what criminal chooses to put their criminal act on video. Right. That was a choice he made. So that's in his favor. Yes. And, you know, he goes to court. The jury found him not guilty of rape and kidnapping, thankfully. But he did lose family. He lost friends over it. People who didn't want to be associated with him. He did seem genuinely sorry. Does that change the fact that this happened? No, but... I thought it was interesting, and I don't know if it's just a weird editing thing, but I agree. I He seemed like a very open and genuine person through this whole thing. But mm-hmm. at the end, they're talking, he was like, you know, I would really like to apologize to this young lady. Like, I really put her through some stuff or whatever. And then he kind of goes back to his own perspective, and I was like, yeah. Mm. Yeah, it ruined my <laughs> like, life. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm like, oh, okay. So I'm going to chalk that up to, like, some weird editing or something. I don't know. I, I want to try to give him the benefit of the doubt because he didn't have to come on this show. <laughs> like absolutely. He's the broadcast. only broadcast. Yeah. He's the only manager that did. And I understand that his life has been ruined and that's what is more pressing to him because that's yes. what affects him more. I get that, but you're right. That seems like you should not focus on that. Maybe we do wonder why the police are only interested in the people in front of them and not kind of what's causing all this to happen, right? They're like, well, you committed the crime. Therefore they're just dealing with you. They never, most of the places this happens, they don't ever look at the caller. Who was the caller? And again, I I think it's so difficult for people to kind of fathom that that was the, again, the catalyst for this whole thing to happen. So I think because it's sort of a crazy concept it's just completely dismissed or maybe they make a couple phone calls and they run into roadblocks and they're not as vigorous in their investigations as our friends buddy and victor but Mm -hmm. again you know it it's all part of and like without the caller this would never have happened is sort of my take in a lot of these instances so right and i do understand that it seems like an overwhelming yes obstacle to try to get to try to get the information to find the person who made the call. I get that. I do. Mm -hmm. I don't condone it, but I get it. (laughs) I I mean, it's, I think this is a really good example of, there have been several people in law enforcement or our defense attorney friends, you know, when we did how to fix a drug scandal, there Mm -hmm. are good people out there. And it's nice to see the examples of people like really going after these things. Mm -hmm. I think what we didn't talk about is what it might've cost other cases. Um, We also have examples that we talked about of people that didn't do their job in law enforcement real well. They just kind of jumped to conclusions and that was it. So it's nice to kind of have a little bit of a counterbalance here. We go back to our main story in Victor and I think Buddy's there too, a part of this. But anyway, they're driving to the different correctional facilities to try to nail down the guy with the pants. 
they do have like sort of a general picture of him. Like it's not, you know, you can't zero in and you see a badge number or whatever. I don't know what, how correctional right. officers like no name tag. So the second joint they get to, they find out the name of a guy named David Stewart. This is given to them by Chris Hubbard, who is also a cor- correctional officer, but he's like kind of a supervisory type dude, you know, and of course they talk about being stunned because of this was the quietest, bestest dude ever. As it always seems to happen. Aren't they always? Yeah. 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 <laughs> they interview him right then. And I always, I'm, as soon as I was like, wait a second, you just jump right in there. That's really one of my biggest issues with this as yeah. well. Like you don't yeah. take the name and be like, okay, maybe we'll, uh, maybe we'll take that information with us and we'll do something with that. But we'll do a they, little researches. Yeah, yeah. But they just could not fucking wait. And I mean, like I'm, they're human and whatever, but. It's like a small child with a marshmallow (laughs) experiment, right? They just ate that marshmallow right away. Right. They just couldn't help themselves. No, because they find out that Stuart, David Stuart, was actually at work at the time. So, yeah, they bring him right in. They're like, let's get this party going. And I love, again, they kind of try to out-vague the vague guy. And they're like, do you know why you're here? You know what I mean? (laughs) Yes. It's about time we spoke, isn't it, David Stewart or whatever? Like, and he's like, er, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. And you know, he kind of gives them some sort of vague confirmatory. I knew it wouldn't be long till you found me, kind of answers. Like, but nothing like I was the second gunman. You know, whatever. It wasn't the confession right. that they're hoping for. And by God, they right. really seem like they thought they were gonna like they walk in there. And he was it. just yeah. gonna fold like a house of cards. Yes, absolutely. I mean, he said, oh, did anyone get hurt? And then he said, thank God it's over. And Victor's like, we got him. We got him. But then he wouldn't admit to making any of the calls. Yeah. 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 So, mm, yeah, there's really. Mm. And he he then says, maybe, maybe we should have, like, <laughs> surveilled him, <laughs> caught him in the act. <laughs> Whoopsie daisies. We should have maybe done something different. Yeah, well. Yeah, so they don't arrest him at this point. No, they can't, no. He, like, peels out. And then they get a search warrant. And then they're like, well, he didn't know that we were coming to search him. And I'm like... Didn't he, though? What? <laughs> right. He was totally surprised. He thought that he was like, well, this is over. The end of it, yeah. Time for a cheese sandwich. Like, <laughs> who wouldn't be like, well, they're on to me now. Maybe I Burn get, everything. Rid, <laughs> get rid of some evidence, but no, couldn't, couldn't possibly. We don't know how much time elapsed. I mean, if he like, they followed him home, maybe, but I don't get the sense that that's really what went down. No, because they have to get the warrant and then it's Panama City detectives that do a full search of the property mm-hmm. and they find police magazines, applications to be a police officer. They find a diary he kept from the couple months he was a police officer and, um, seemed like he had a lot of that small dick energy for lack of a better word. Like he really wanted to have that power over people. Right. Is what it appeared like, which would play into this whole shtick of calling people. Cause our coworker, when we were telling him about the story was like, what would you, why would you do that? How do you get off on someone else doing? I'm like, it's really, it's all about power. Honestly, that's all this is. Right. And it's dropped quite a bit that he's a sexual predator. I mean, the caller, not necessarily mm-hmm. David, but if you lump them in together as he's been accused. Right. That he's a sexual predator. And I mean, like anybody that's listened to any true crime shows 
you know, they talk a lot about rape and sexual assault really isn't about sex. It's about power over somebody else. And so this lines up really nicely for me with that. So you want a position of authority. There's a lot of uh, police idolation, ideation, whatever the fuck that word is. Ideation. That's the one I'm looking for. There you go. (laughs) Anyway, in there, I think my favorite part was that in the interview, David Stewart's like, I don't use phone cards. What are phone cards? And then they find phone cards and I'm like, you know, but that's not enough to like some, some, somebody up river, you know, whatever. Listen, at that time, we all had phone cards. We had to call after seven o'clock. It was cheaper. Phone <laughs> cards made calling long distance cheaper. It, it was not a big deal. It was not a big thing. When I moved and I lived very far away from my family, I had, I had calling cards to call my family because I don't want to get that phone bill and have hundreds of dollars. I mean, I wasn't right. calling, I wasn't calling Clio, but it's still expensive. Weren't you though? Mm. You had copious amounts of phone cards with like four minutes left on them. Yes. Anyway. Yes. But that's what I was thinking with the cards. How long do Jesus, how large were those cards? How many minutes were you getting? If three hours long, that's a fucking shit ton of minutes on a card. I mean, at what point does the, does the phone go, your card is almost done. Right. You know what I mean? And they have to like hang up real quick or finish the call real quick. Like you're talking to a prisoner. I don't know. I think you raised some excellent points because again, there were a lot of like practical bits in this that I was like, this doesn't make any fucking sense. Did he just put more quarters in? I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> he just like, hold on. I got to type in another number. You know, <laughs> I'm switch over right here. <laughs> right. So the thing is with the calling cards, unless you found the exact ones that were used in the crimes that you can, I mean, you can talk to other cops around and see if you can find more, but, Otherwise, they're just calling cards. Everyone had them. Maybe not everyone, but a lot of people had them, right? Well, I mean, you you would try to do certain things, right? Like, were they AT&T calling cards? Could we work with Michelle back on the first page of my notes to see if she can align the numbers, uh, the mystery numbers that were just randomly typed on there or whatever? <laughs> so they didn't talk a lot about that in the investigation. So that leads me to believe they weren't able to do that because I think if it, they would have, things would have been a little different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so it, it takes, it takes Buddy, Buddy's the one who's able to get the arrest, you know, uh, issued, yeah, mm-hmm. for um, David Stewart. The people that Victor is working with don't feel like they have enough information. It doesn't feel tight enough for them to issue that, so. Right, in Panama City, they're like, we were not, we can't get him for yes. a sex crime, because he wasn't there. Yes, yep, yep, yep. Right. So, then we kind of talk to a guy named uh, Steve... Romains, 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 Romines, I don't know. Right. The most delicious Romans. of Steve's. Yes. The crispiest of Steve's. <laughs> if you, if you go with my lettuce one, uh, that's my favorite. <laughs> so he is David Stewart's attorney and he's an interesting cat because again, I think he brings a lot of good points into this argument. Well, that's his job. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think he does a good job there. And I think it's really funny too, that on the drive back, because I they can't afford to fly at this point when they're driving <laughs> David back to Kentucky from Panama City. They're like, he's just such an average guy. And like we're just talking about like the weather and whatever mm-hmm. sportsy stuff the dudes talk about on long trips. I don't know. I've I've driven from Indianapolis to Panama City, and this is close enough. Remove a couple hours there, but Jesus Christ, can you imagine being in handcuffs in the back of a cop car taking that drive? Oh no. I mean no. where are my snacks? Who's controlling the radio? And I have to pee. I mean, the whole time. 
Yes. Uh, David ends up being charged with solicitation of sodomy and impersonating an officer. And obviously impersonating an officer, but I'm like, uh, what kind of definition of sodomy are we talking about? It's Kentucky. Thank I you. Know. I was like, have I been wrong my entire life thinking what this was? <laughs> what? I was like, wait a second, it might be a little (laughs) bit more broad than I thought it was. (laughs) Is it just like a catch-all, maybe? I don't know, just anything weird, they're thrown in that category. (laughs) We don't like it. Yeah, that's right. It's not for appropriation, so it's going in that bucket. Anyway, I don't know, weird. And so... Well, and let's also say that, so Victor thought he would be like a lone wolf type person, but (laughs) this cat is married and he has five fucking kids. Five kids. That's a lot of kids. That's a lot of babies. Sorry, that was Lewis. But yeah, so, you know, there's a lot involved with that. You can't just go away for hours at a time sometimes. So you have to take care of kids. You have to pick them up. You have to whatever. It seems like maybe I not mean, enough time. I don't know. Because I come back to, that's not that's not necessarily a deal breaker for me because, you know, BTK had wife and kids, yet he had all kinds of fucking time to stalk and kill people. So true. true. I, I think his wife was probably extraordinary. That's what I come back to. Doing everything. Yes. Yeah, she was probably an incredible mom. So anyway, our friend, the attorney, Steve, has the bail reduced initially from $500,000 to $100,000. So this guy mm-hmm. can get out of jail and go home to prepare for trial and whatnot. So uh, but he's very upset that he gets out and they're like, oh, he's a flight risk and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, sure, whatever. I mean, it's the the standard arguments. You know, I don't know what to say about that. I didn't really have a strong opinion. And then we meet maybe one of my bestest friends in this whole thing, Javier, who's a fellow podcast host. I love him. Yes, I do too. So he hosts the Pretend Podcast, which I may have to go check out now. Absolutely. And he's a researcher and he looks into, uh, he mentions over a hundred hoax calls. So we find out about even more. So what the police say and what Javier says is a little bit different, but I mean, it could have grown since then. It's 10 years. There, there could have been some ones we didn't know about initially. Mm -hmm. And he kind of brings up the part that McDonald's could be culpable. I mean, did they not know this was going on? So that's another factor in this story, at least for Louise's perspective. Right. And so he also mentions that it was Louise's case that really got the world's attention. Because this has been going on, like we said, for 10 years. But this mm-hmm. is the case that really kind of made everyone be like, what? Like, this got out to the world. Probably because, again, the internet was becoming more popular then. And so you can push it out farther. But also, Javier said that he traveled around the U.S. for work and that, and he would talk to managers at different restaurants and ask them if they knew anything about this hoax caller situation. They were like, no. So, yeah, even 10 years on, hundreds of cases. And there are probably a lot more that, again, didn't get that far, that just hung up or moved on with their life or, you know, at a certain point after they took the shoes off, were like, no, nah, I don't feel comfortable with this and stopped. We didn't even hear about those. Right, because we're we're looking at more extreme cases. I mean, I'd like to think that there wasn't anything more extreme than this, but, I mean, we don't really talk about the scale of that. But at this point, we kind of flip back. We talk to Deborah again. Mm-hmm. She has decided that she's going to sue the manager and the owner of that franchise of the Taco Bell. Yep. So, and then they fucking try to get her goddamn therapy notes. And I'm like, don't do that. Don't do that. Because, of course, they want to prove that it's her problem. I don't understand. 
like she was troubled and was asking for it. I don't understand what the point of this was. In the end, it worked, right? So between the therapy notes and whatever, it made it so she wouldn't testify because she didn't want to relive it. Therefore, the, the case was thrown out. And so it worked in their favor. They just really wanted to put it on her. She was complicit. There's nothing we could have done. Totally, it's all her. I'm sure what she was wearing can't play a part if she's wearing a uniform, but I don't know. They probably threw that in there too. Well, I couldn't decide if it was because, you know, something had happened and she was a gold digger and she was going after a payday because that could have been an angle. Um, Mm -hmm. Or if it was more like she had some issues and so this was beyond, I, I don't know. Like I said, they didn't really necessarily explore it, but you're right. They did ask questions that made her so uncomfortable in a courtroom full of fucking strangers that she didn't want to talk about having to bend over and spread open so her manager could look up her hoo-ha. Like, no thanks. You see my cervix? Because you're just saving me a trip to the girly Right. Doctor. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Also, I think part of it is if she's trying to claim mental anguish, if they are trying to prove that she already had these issues before this happened, okay. is probably what they were trying to do. Okay. Either way, they're fucking horrible. They're fucking horrible. <laughs> oh, so goddamn horrible. Uh, but Louise, Louise, we keep calling her Louise, which is a lovely name, but Louise Ogborn decides to sue McDonald's. Right. Her fucking lawyer is named Anne Oldfather. That's a goddamn Norse god name, if I, I ever heard one. And she's got the most glorious hair. It's, it is amazing white hair. Yes. Yes. Stunning. And she's, she's a badass. She's, She's a badass. such a badass. I'm going to be her when I grow up. Right? They sue McDonald's for $200 million. Now, I love when they, they make these huge amounts and the defense is like, oh, they're just looking, this large sum proves they're just looking for money. No, 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 bitch. This large sum is to prove a point, one. And two, they know they're not getting $200 million, And so they're going to get a small portion of that if they win. So if you ask for a million and you only get a couple hundred thousand, that sucks. No, they want to make a dent in their profit so maybe they'll fucking change their ways yes yes 100 percent. yes um so mcdonald's attorney is wr patterson mcdonald oh sorry never mind because tom mcdonald's the judge and i have that next so i'm like it is it is very confusing very confusing but yes go ahead sorry mcdonald's the company yes the company's (laughs) uh main attorney is a guy named wr patterson um I don't know that there's really a whole lot more to say other than him, his name, and then also that he was like, it's a payday for this broad or whatever. It's nothing we could have done. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so the trial judge, again, is Tom McDonald. And I find that that, I hope there were name tags because there's a lot of McDonald (laughs) McDonald in this. Yes. Yes. But he seemed like, he seemed like a good cat, right? He also seemed like, he was like, this was such a fucked up case. And I thought it was interesting that he spoke about it because I kind of feel like judges are, I don't know, sort of not isolated, but they just don't talk about their perspectives a lot. I think a lot of times they're not allowed to. Now, he's a retired judge, so maybe that helps, right? Mm -hmm. So one of the things that is somewhat ironic is that McDonald's hired a PI who got arrested for (laughs) pretending to be a police officer. Oh, irony. And intimidating witnesses. Like, didn't you learn your lesson about what this case is about in the first place? And now you're going to pull that shit? Right. So he's serving a warrant to one of Luisa's friends. Mm -hmm. And 
is kind of generally, uh, at least the McDonald's staff or whatever you're like, the investigators are intimidating people. They're kind of being dicks about stuff. It just so happened that this cat got caught super hot. Mm-hmm. But yeah, probably not the best look. Considering. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and so they're trying to get, Old Father is trying to get more information She's like, hey, why don't you give us all the information you have on these hoaxes? They've happened at a lot of your restaurants. We can look and see that. And they're like, well, we don't have anything. I mean, we all we know is that we've we've settled six lawsuits out of, you know, already for this. That's something. Yeah. And so finally the judge is like, bitch, just give her the information and force right. them like, to. Quit fucking around. Let's see how much you knew. And then of course, they played the same bullshit every other fucking defense attorney plays. Is they send like 20 boxes full of documents two days before the trial. So no one has time to go through this. Right. We'll just kill them with paperwork. Right. But they have time to go through enough of it mm-hmm. to find enough information to prove that they knew about it. Right. And mind you, they also are going after Louise. Louise. Mm-hmm. They're also going after her character to discredit her by looking at her therapy notes. They go after her MySpace account to see what kind of shenanigans they can pull out of the weeds from that. So back to the original story, the custodian who came in Mm -hmm. to stop the whole debacle as it was happening, he came back and testified sort of against her to say in the days after it happened, he overheard her say, I'm going to get a big check for this. And I'm like, okay. Did you? Good or, did one. Someone, or did someone else say, hey, did you hear her say this? And he's like, maybe. And then they go from there. You know what I mean? Then it becomes planted in your head. Well, I just am like, just because somebody offhand makes a comment doesn't really mean anything. Oh, I tell my dogs on a daily basis, I'm going to kill them. Here they sit. They're lazy asses in their beds next to me. So... Right. And they're new fluffy beds because you can't find in beds. <laughs> That they keep eating. Right. Yes. But so in this case, Louise did testify for herself and you get to hear some of it. And it's horrible. I think my favorite thing is that they decided to let the jury and the judge watch the entire three hour video. And the judge said, one, it was fucking horrible to watch. No sound. No sound. This is. And he said, the only thing you could hear in the courtroom at the time was some of the jurors crying as they watched, right? Nothing else. No one was talking. No one had hard candy. You know what I mean? Um, <laughs> it's respectable. <laughs> so it's just, I, I can't imagine as much as I think it'd be cool to be on a jury. Sometimes I think I would, I would have been the, the one crying watching that. I think, I mean, because, okay. So in the documentary, they show you some of the footage. They have blurred out her body for, you know, whatever, Mm-hmm. Which is the right thing to do, but they show her face and she's like crying the whole time. And like, you can see her wiping her face and whatever. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, she snotted up that apron so hard. And they just had to throw <laughs> it right away because this is some <laughs> bullshit. But she didn't have a tissue or anything. Nothing. I know. Paper towel. And then, and then of course the defense is like, when they're talking to Louise on the stand, didn't you think about telling Donna what her fiance was doing? She's like, I don't know. He'd already beaten me and I knew Donna was going to walk back out. What is he going to do next? How is he going to punish me then? Right. Ugh. Yeah. 
Right. And let's push all the responsibility off on her. They also said, well, you were left alone for like 10 minutes. Why didn't you get up and walk out then? And she's like, with what? Like, she said, I didn't know I could. Right? Yeah. She probably assumed the door was locked, but you're right. With what? She had no clothes, no keys, no nothing. So she would have like walked outside to be naked by her car. Like, it's just such a, <laughs> such a stupid fucking thing to say out of context. I mean, should she have tackled a customer and wrestled their clothes off them? And like, you know what? I'm like, no. Then we're back to, to square one. That's how this started. Oh, uh, so stupid. It is It is a horrible thing for the defense to say, I think, I think that's really where they fucked up. It's like trying to pin it on her and the jury having watched that video was like, nah, bitch. No. No. 100%. So anyway, McDonald's is found guilty. I don't know exactly how you say that, but the they ended up having to pay her. The settlement's for $6 million. Yep. That's not $200 million, everyone. It's $6 million. So there was some kind of something going on that they don't necessarily discuss. It's fine. I didn't really expect her to get the $200 million, but nonetheless. No one did. They don't, when they ask for that much, they don't expect it either. But Right. Yeah. I would like to think that the jury was like, we award her this money for punitive damages. And also, we're requiring McDonald's to actually send a fucking memo out so their employees know what's going on. Something. Right, because that's the whole thing. Like, they didn't protect their employees. And I don't understand what the cost would have been for them to admit that that was going on, that they were being targeted. Thank you. I said the same thing. And I'm like, what would the cost have been after the first couple for them to send out a memo and to have meetings with employees, you know, the managers to the employees to say, this is going on. Make sure if you answer the phone, you know, you, if it's a police officer, tell them they have to come here or whatever, have something next to the phone. So people will see it when they pick up the phone. What did it cost them? Why did they hide it? And that's what, I mean, not just McDonald's, but other companies seem to hide it as well. And I don't understand what it would have cost them to prevent the next one from happening. I mean, maybe admitting it and like if they had warned people and then something had happened, maybe then they were extra culpable. I don't know. I think the exact opposite. If they had done their due diligence Mm -hmm. and they had warned everybody and the management didn't like push it out like they were supposed to, or they didn't like that store didn't have what was going on, then this store would be responsible, but not them as a corporate. They're like, listen, we have proof. We've done this. We try to warn everybody. Mm -hmm. There's a high turnover. There are a lot of employees, so you would have to continuously talk to people, but still. But I do like posting it by the phone, on the phone, any of this. Like, I mean, they have Mm -hmm. shift meetings. Yeah. (laughs) Like, in most places, you can be like, oh, by the way, Officer Davis or whatever, like, don't fall for this shit. You know, you don't have to be naked anywhere at this (laughs) location. Like, It's unhygienic. Please don't be naked anywhere at this food establishment. Yes. Right. So, anyway, that's sort of where we left that off. I hope Luis has an amazing life after this and she gets all the therapy. Mm -hmm. So then we kind of go back to the criminal trial for David Stewart in Kentucky. I think it's interesting that his attorney mentions the police's version is the perspective that we hear. And that Mm -hmm. is so true. We have talked about that multiple times that that is the narrative that gets out. And so anything that's opposing that doesn't always feel true or sound right or whatever, because the first thing you hear is typically what you tend to believe. Mm -hmm. So they also talk about David's wife was an alibi for a couple of these calls. 
Right. So they went through, like the police went through David's schedule and they could see that he was not working at the time of the calls. So he would be free to make them. But David's wife was like, listen, um, we have an understanding that if he's not working and I am, he has to pick up kids. He has to do these things. And Mm -hmm. so that's what he was doing at four o'clock on Friday, the whatever. Mm -hmm. He was picking up kids. Um, He was taking them to ballet or whatever they go to. So there were alibis for several of the calls that even the prosecution were like, we can't really fight that. Right. So they didn't go into, I guess I would have felt better either way if they had said, yes, we know that at this time the kid had to be picked up. You know, they didn't really, they were just kind of like, well, she said that they, he was out doing this stuff. There wasn't anything else. So I was like, I, I would have liked to have heard a little bit more there, but again, I wasn't at the trial. There's probably some good information there that I'm just not getting. Yeah. But I'm also like the wife alibi is not my favorite. No, and the when he first started saying, oh, they had a, a slam dunk alibi, the wife said, and I was like, no. <laughs> I, no, I was just like, that's not a thing. No, no, stop it. But it, it was um, when they started explaining that, you know, they have the schedule and the kids have to be picked up. That's generally pretty well documented that school is out at this time and they have to pick up at this time, right? That's what I'm, yeah, yeah yes. absolutely. Or like we had video of his van rolling up and like kids getting in. I mean, you know what I mean? Like. His kids getting in, not random kids getting in, but yes. Yes, some kids getting in. <laughs> and then he went out of the parking lot and turned left, which we know is deadly. Anyway, Ooh. so the point of all this is to say he was found not guilty. Right, he was. Well, I also want to say real quick that thank God it's over statement that Victor discussed and thought he was going to get a confession. Steve, the lawyer, said that was actually in reference to the interrogation being over, like at the end, like thank God it's over. And Victor made it sound like it was right at the beginning. As much as I like Victor, and it's, he came off mostly well in this, but he said some things that bothered me. There were a lot of gut feelings, a lot of I knew mm-hmm. this. There was some of that. Yes. Like He actually says, if he didn't do it, who did? And I'm like, that's not proof. That's I not mean, proof. Anyone else literally in <laughs> Panama City. <laughs> like, I think the verdict was correct if... All the evidence that they had was presented here. They had a pretty good circumstantial case, but they could not tie him to the phone. The phone calls, there's just like, I don't know. So I agree. It's it's nice to say, oh, we have someone for this. We have solved this crime. And it's nice to think that that's true. But you're right. This, the evidence was circumstantial. It was surface level at best. Had they maybe not jumped the gun and talked to him immediately and just surveilled him for a bit, they might have gotten better evidence Mm -hmm. or just surveilled those couple of payphones that they knew he used quite often. Wait for someone to be there for an hour or more and you could probably talk to them. You know what I mean? Because no one stays in a payphone that long. Right. So there were definitely some problems. And I think that I think that this verdict is correct. So that's tough because you don't want this guy to be able to continue to victimize people like that's not a good thing but Mm -hmm. as many of the things that we have covered even in our short stint of making content I find this reassuring that it wasn't based on just feelings and they knew Mm -hmm. and it was fine and I don't know I think it's frustrating because Buddy and Victor put in a lot of effort to get oh my god 
so much work, right? And mm-hmm. then I feel like it stopped short, like, okay, we're done. And they just stopped versus actually following it through and finding the right person or getting enough evidence for the right person. You know, Buddy makes a comment like, you know, both Victor and Buddy are like, we got the right guy. But Buddy was like, no one dropped those calling cards in his house. Well, but they're just calling cards. Were those the calling cards that were actually used? I mean. Right. Right. Yeah. So a couple other things I wanted to mention is the calls stopped supposedly in 2004. Mm-hmm. So it's possible he got scared enough to fucking stop. It's possible the person making the calls got arrested and was in prison for something else. You know what yeah, I mean? And it has nothing do. to do with this cat. hundred percent. hundred percent. So it's not resolved. In, mm-hmm. in the way that we like to tie up a nice big bow for you. So I, I like the fact that it's unlikely that people are still being victimized in this way. At, you know, we don't know for there's, sure. There's new and exciting ways people are being victimized. Yes. <laughs> 100%. But yeah, it's it's hard to just walk away from it like this. <laughs> it is. It is. But I, I hate to tie this person's name to it when you're right. There was no real evidence. So mm-hmm. hopefully he was able to move on. If it was him, hopefully he's able to go to therapy and rehabilitate. I don't know. They say he was found not guilty of all charges. No other charges have ever been brought up against him for any of the other calls. He declined to take part in the documentary. Understandable, right? He's probably wanted to move on. This is 15 right. years later for crying right. out loud. After Luis Ogborn's lawsuit, McDonald's said this. McDonald's is not disputing that what happened to Miss Ogborn was wrong. However, it has been our position throughout these proceedings that she was the victim of malicious and malicious hoax perpetrated by individuals not representing McDonald's. Yeah, dude, no one said that the call was coming from inside the house, right? <laughs> yes. We said that you could have prevented it. Mm-hmm. They said they warned staff about the hoax calls prior to the Mount Washington incident and it said it is committed to providing its staff with a safe and respectful workplace. Mm, I doubt that. They also chose not to participate or comment on the documentary. I mean, there are different takes on this. And one of the podcasts I listened to, they said that they they did leave like a voicemail for the staff. Like, but the staff was supposed to sort of spread that through the ranks of people that didn't have access to the voicemail. But that was it. Yeah, that's a very minimal CYA. Yeah. There should have been more robust. And again, what does it what does it cost you to actually put this in the new hire training and to put this to, you know, every shift that you talk to your people to put it next to the phone? It's a couple pieces of paper. Just calm down. I just find it interesting that even after six settlements that they were still like, man, this couldn't possibly happen again. That's fine. And that's what they said. Uh, It was happening at all sorts of restaurants across the country, but the majority of them were McDonald's. Probably because there are more of those than anything else, right? Just statistically. Yeah. But you would think, yeah, you would think they would want to save themselves the trouble of having to go through this again and again. But here we are. And they do mention that they're targeting small towns, you know, not big metropolis centers. You know, I mean, I I don't know what, what you really want to make of that, but. I think that they were after a specific demographic of people that might have been more susceptible to this. Absolutely. Yeah. Someone in the city would be like, ain't nobody got time for this. (laughs) That's right. That is correct. So yeah, it's a, it's a tough story. Um, I hate to hear about somebody trying to make work worse for people. It's hard enough. (laughs) Right. Jesus. (laughs) Right. It is a tough story to listen to. 
and watch, but I think they did a really good job. I think they covered it. They weren't pushing the agenda of this person absolutely did it. They, they put out the evidence. They let the cops say this person did it, but then the lawyer was like, he didn't fucking do it. So they had both sides represented. And I think that's refreshing. Yeah, I did like the perspective of it as well. I also like the fact that they didn't focus on the crime itself as much. Mm -hmm. That made it more interesting. But yeah, it is interesting to hear about a story that we've heard a little bit. This is just another perspective on it. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it was good. It was really really well done. And it flew by. And I was like on the edge of my seat like the whole time. Like, what will happen? Even though I I knew. It was dumb. So... I know. I know. I mean, I watched the Titanic knowing it was going to sink. So it's the same thing, really. (laughs) Right. 100%. Okay. I hope everyone liked it. I hope if you haven't seen it, you go watch it and watch it with your own baby eyes and come to your own conclusions. Well, I would also like to say, please discuss this with people in your life because it's okay to have a moment and listen to your own conscience and say, this is wrong. I'm not going to do this. Like, I think that that's the part that we don't talk about in the resolution of this. Like when I heard the story on, um, I think my favorite murder, one of the ladies there covered it. I listened to it with my 15 year old and I discussed it with my eight year old to say, look, you have the ability to say no to authority. I would much prefer you to say, I had some doubts about what was going on. So I, you know, moonwalk my way out of that situation or stop Mm -hmm. the situation or what was, you know, you felt safe doing. I would support you as a parent in a situation Mm -hmm. like that. Like I'm okay. If you question things when it makes sense to do so. Right. Yeah. Right. And know your rights. I mean, you know, we kind of talk about don't be a sucker. (laughs) I mean, it's okay to, to speak up for yourself. Right. Especially as women. I don't know. Right. And again, that's easy for us to say as, as white women. Yes. Because $20 killed George Floyd. So take that advice with a grain of salt and do with it with whatever works best for you and your family. But yes, talk, talk to people. Right. Yeah. Cause this kind of stuff won't happen if we challenge it, if we talk about it, if we discuss it, I think that's better than just being polite. <laughs> so yes. Fuck politeness yeah, as the ladies say. Yeah. For real. Okay, so okay. that was that was a long one to come back on. Yes. What are we doing next week? All right, so we're going to do The Volcano, It's Rescue from Watakari. Mm-hmm. This is a Netflix pick running about an hour and 38 minutes. Please make sure that you have something to treat your cuticles with afterwards because you'll be watching this in the edge of your seat and biting your nails the whole time. It is it's my anxiety, but it's so well done. It was really a really good story. Yes, my anxiety kicked in. Um, just just be aware that that, that factor is there. That anxiety is going to come out and then also have tissues because at the end I was crying hysterically. So yes. it's a roller coaster of emotions is what it is. But right. amazing, amazing. Yeah, a really good story. Beyond that, we will ask you to rate, review, and subscribe. It's always nice to have a little bit of feedback. We always appreciate it. Uh, good, bad, constructive, what have you. So Mm-hmm. Thanks for thinking of us and um, taking the time to do that. Yep. And uh, we're glad to have you back. We hope you enjoy this next year with us. Yes. Um, give us any suggestions you have. We'd be happy to do them. And gosh, we'll talk to you next week. That's it. Sounds great. Later. Bye. Bye.